Welcome to the Flatline with your host, Rick Hughes. For the next 30 minutes, you'll be inspired, motivated, educated, but never manipulated. Now, your host, Rick Hughes. And welcome back to the Flatline. I'm your host, Rick Hughes, and for the next few minutes, I'm going to ask you to stay with me. It'll be a time of motivation, inspiration, education, just like every week. No manipulation, no games, no gimmicks, no appeals for money, no solicitations, not trying to get you to join up, fess up, give it up, nothing like that. This show is simply about giving you some accurate information, not human speculation, but accurate information developed from the Bible, the canon of Scripture, the Word of God. That's right, it's a show about the Bible, but don't turn the dial yet. No ranting and no raving, no carrying on, no foolishness. Just trying to lay out simple concepts from the Bible so that you can verify and identify what might be God's plan for your life. And if I can do that, you have the freedom and the privacy always to orient and adjust to the plan. That's up to you. But our show is always about accurate content. Not about being a great communicator, but about being a accurate content, giving you accurate information. No manipulation. And we have been talking about the 10 unique problem-solving devices that make up the forward line of troops in your soul. That's why we call it the flat line, forward line of troops. 10 unique biblical problem-solving devices. And this is not something that we've conjured up. This is not something new. These are age-old biblical doctrines that have always been here. And sometimes we just have to put them into uh, a system so that we know what they are and how to use them. So we're talking about those problem-solving devices, and we're reviewing what we've taught before. If you've never heard this, let me suggest that you contact us through our website, rickhughesministries.org, and I'll send you the book, Christian Problem Solving. There'll be no charge, and there'll be no follow-up information from us. But if you'd like to get a list of those 10 problem-solving devices, let us know. We'll ship it out to you ASAP at no charge. So I want you to understand that one of the greatest problem-solving devices we have is personal love for God. And we've been talking about that last week and this week. That is problem-solving device number six, or number seven, I guess, on the flat line of your soul. Problem-solving device number seven on the flat line of your soul. Personal love for God. That's going to lead us to impersonal love for others, which we will talk about a little bit later on, and then eventually into sharing uh, the happiness of God and eventually being occupied with Jesus Christ. We're looking at those last four problem-solving devices, and they are found in the Word of God. This is not something that we're making up. So I want to show you today how motivational virtue motivational virtue that's your personal love for God that goes back to 1 John 5 3 if you love me you will obey me so there are two words linked up there obedience and love all obedience is coming from the motivation of personal love for God if you're going to live the Christian life and if you're going to glorify God to the maximum you're going to do it because you love him and you might not have seen him, you might not have touched him, but you know he's real, you know his word is real, 
You've come to know him through your soul, the invisible part of you. And you love him. You love him because he provided salvation for you through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You love him because he gave you his word. You love him because he provided the Holy Spirit to guide you and lead you in your life. You love him because he sustains you daily with all of your logistical grace needs. I mean, why would you not love him? Everything you need, everything you want, everything your life is about has all been provided by the grace of God. But on occasion, we tend to mess things up. One of the ways that we mess things up is when we allow sin to gouge into our life. When we allow sin to gouge in and scar us up. Have you ever had your car keyed? I have not yet. I hope I don't. But I've seen people who come out of a movie theater or come out of a grocery store and someone took a key and just gouged their car all the way down the door, just scraped it. Well, sometimes our souls get gouged like that. This is what sin does to us. Sin will create scar tissue in our soul. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.17, This I say, this is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, And I testify in the Lord that you should not walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. So he's warning that church not to live like the unbelievers live in the empty mind, nothing in their thoughts. Futility is an empty word. It's in the Greek New Testament, it is the word for the emptiness of mind, the metaotes of the mind. They are darkened in their understanding, the Bible says in verse 18, Ephesians 4.18. Why are they darkened? They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of, here's why, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Hardness of the heart. The word hardness is porosis, P-O-R-O-S-I-S, and it's a word for scar tissue. Scar tissue. The heart can get hard. The heart can get scarred up. Listen to verse 19. Thus they became calloused and have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but it is not what you have learned from Jesus Christ. Listen, a believer can scar his soul. Can you remove it? Yes. Listen to 1 Peter 1.22. I want you to think about this. It could be in relationship to your own life and your past and things that have scarred your soul in the past. It can be in relationship to your children or your grandchildren who have been into things they do not need to get into, things that have left a scar in their soul, a scar, a guilt, a memory, a hurt conscience. Here it is. Now that you have purified your souls, 1 Peter 1.22, now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to truth so that you have genuine love one of another deeply from your heart. How do you purify your soul? By obedience to the truth. Let's go back to those two words. If you love me, you will obey me, and my mandates are not grievous. First John 5, 3. Give me some of the mandates. 
Well, study to show thyself approved unto God. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn of me. Study, learn, grow. Let's go back to the verse. Those are three mandates. Now that you purified your soul by obeying those mandates, what is it that removes the scar tissue? It is the washing of God's word in your soul. When your soul, and that's your mind, that's part of your soul, is your mentality, your volition, your conscience, your self-consciousness, when your mind gets scarred up with memories, things that haunt you, scars and, and things that you remember and things that have happened and things that cause you uh, to feel guilty or things that cause you to feel hostility and bitterness and anger, you can remove those things. I don't care what they are. You can remove them by watering your soul with the Word of God. Listen to 1 Peter 1.22. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that means you've been studying, you've rebounded, you've stayed filled with the Holy Spirit, you're taking in God's Word consistently, with the result that, or so that, Peter says, so that you have genuine love one for another deeply from the heart. To be purified is the verb hognizo in the Greek New Testament. Hognizo means to be pure from fault, to make pure, to cleanse ceremonially and morally. So there are two ways that any believer purifies himself. The first way is when we rebound when we use problem-solving device, number one, we confess our known sin to God. And the second way is through the biblical inculcation where the scar tissue in the soul is removed. I have seen Christians that got out of fellowship with God and stayed out of fellowship over a long period of time who do not have the ability to concentrate. This is what sin will do to you. This is what drugs will do to you. This is what abusing sex will do to you. You lose the ability to concentrate. And this is why you cannot grow spiritually, because you can't listen. You can't pay attention. Your mind wanders and your mind drifts. These sort of people, once they rebound, once they're back under the filling of the Holy Spirit, they need to begin to study a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. You can't drop an hour worth of Bible class on them. They're just not going to be there the whole time. But as you begin to feed them and as they begin to grow, then they begin to regain their ability to concentrate. Their mind is no longer cluttered with the sin and with the scars, and they begin to focus on divine viewpoint, and they begin to let go of the bitterness and the guilt and the shame. It's an amazing thing. It's so easy to blame our miserable life on miserable circumstances that occurred to us, and yet that's not why we are who we are. We are who we are because we choose to be that. You don't have to choose to be a loser. You can choose to take God's Word, learn it, and use it and glorify God to the max in spite of any circumstances that might have happened to you. You are not a victim of your circumstances.
You are a victim of your decisions, and bad decisions limit future options. You see, sin can scar the soul. Sin can pollute the conscience. Listen to Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the ones who have been defiled, and the unbelieving ones, nothing is pure, but their mind and their conscience has been defiled. The mind and the conscience are defiled. The conscience is where all the norms and standards are stored. The mind is where you assimilate information and act upon the information. So let's look at this. When we scar up our souls, first thing we do is we shut down the ability to take in information. Now, I didn't make that up. I read it to you from the Bible. You want to hear it again? This is Ephesians 4. It says what? They are darkened in their understanding. That's their mind. Alienated from the life of God or the plan of God. And why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Ignorance. No knowledge. Well, why do they not have any knowledge? Due to the hardness of their heart. The scar tissue corroded and scarred and hardened the heart so that even the believer now cannot concentrate. His mind cannot function correctly. And he needs to begin to wash all that out with the Word of God. The washing of the Word of God will purify his thinking so that his conscience can get fired back up and his norms and standards can set back in motion what he should be. Norms, things that you live by. Standards, the Word of God. You must understand this. In order to be a well-adjusted person, you must have norms and standards. You must have in your norms hygiene, privacy, freedom, property, etc. And in your standards, what are your standards for right and wrong? Hopefully, it's the Word of God. Let's say the Ten Commandments. There's a standard. So if you live by the Ten Commandments, that's your standard. Now, the Christian life is much more than the Ten Commandments. There are well over 400 commandments in the Old Testament in what is called Codex 1, Codex 2, and Codex 3. But the Freedom Code, or the Ten Commandments, is a great standard for every individual within the nation. So when you have standards that are biblically based, and when you have norms that allow you to function in society without being offensive and weird and criminal, then you can function. But your mind must be able to concentrate. And that's what scar tissue does. Alienates you from God's plan because you are ignorant. You don't know it. How can you know it if your heart is hard? How can you learn it? Remember this, the Holy Spirit is the one that's supposed to guide us and teach us truth. But if we have quenched the Holy Spirit and grieved the Holy Spirit as believers, how could he possibly do that? He can't. Until you rebound and confess your sin and allow the Holy Spirit to fill you once again. So when this verse says in Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the ones that have been defiled... And unbelievers, unbelieving ones, nothing is pure, but their mind and their conscience has been defiled. 
The word defiled is an interesting word. It is the word me I know. Me I know. You say, what does that mean? Well, the best way I can tell you is there was no indoor plumbing in those days. They didn't have commodes in the house. And so they had chamber pots, and whenever the chamber pot had to be emptied, me I know was yelled. Me I know was what's in the chamber pot. So keep that in your mind. Here is what can get inside of you. What's in the chamber pot can pollute your thinking. It can pollute your soul so that you're not able to live the Christian life. So how do you remove the pollution from your soul? When you take in the Word of God consistently under the filling of the Holy Spirit, you will learn and apply and cleanse your soul. Pure, clean Bible doctrine is like a well of pure water in your soul. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Psalm 69.1, Deliver me, O God, for the water has reached my neck. That's right. How do we purify our soul? By obeying the truth. Now, this is not a system of salvation. This is positional sanctification, not permanent sanctification. Permanent sanctification is when you get saved. This is... Uh, you getting in fellowship with God experientially and living your daily life as glorifying to him. So think about that. Did, listen to 1 Corinthians 3. Sometimes people miss this one, and I want to give this to you. This is why you can't walk around polluted. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't walk around with this scar tissue in your life. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Don't you know that you are the temple of God? Paul writes this to the church at Corinth. This is what he wrote. And the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. If any man defile the temple, let's pollute the temple, him will God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are. God can put you under the sin unto death. You as a believer can go out under the sin unto death. There are three stages of discipline. Warning discipline, intense discipline, and yes, even dying discipline. You can read about it yourself. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians 5 and read what happens under the sin unto death to the believer in that passage. You see, when we scar up our soul, we have no love for God. We can't have love for God. It's impossible because we can't learn and know his word because the Bible says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And how can we obey him if we're not learning what he says? It's impossible. There are several words in the Bible that are important for the temple in the New Testament. The shrine or the sanctuary used among the heathen to denote a shrine concerning idols, that was one of them. And then there's a sacred place, and, and it's never really used figuratively, but it's the real place. It's the place where God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of you. Yes, he does. He lives in you. And so what Peter is saying is when you obey God, 
by means of the Holy Spirit, now that you've purified your soul by your obedience to truth, you will have genuine love one for another, resulting in unhypocritical brotherly love. Philadelphia, brotherly love. Love for the band of brothers. Love for one another. It was an amazing thing in World War II. The Japanese never quite figured it out. They would die for the emperor. They would fly kamikaze airplanes and crash them for Hirohito. But Americans died for one another. Men gave their life for each other. The combat veteran's love for the man who served in combat beside him is an incredible, incredible, courageous love. It's very close to the believer's love one for another that we should have for each other. That's why believers should be able to see each other and embrace each other and be warm encountering each other. Combat veterans are like that. Any combat veteran that served in combat has great appreciation one for another. Different personalities, great appreciation. That's what made America what it is. Men and women who would die for one another. This is a love that's totally relaxed. This love for God is a mental attitude love based on the filling of the Holy Spirit, based on the Word of God in your soul, based on your appreciation and respect for who and what God is, and it motivates your response to obey Him. Personal love for God is an amazing thing. Impersonal love for one another is even more amazing. You see, personal love for God is what motivates you to obey him. And how should I obey him? And I'm told I've got to love other people. Impersonal love. I'm supposed to love weirdos, and I'm supposed to love jerks, and I'm supposed to love members of my extended family that I don't even like being around on holidays. Impersonal love can be a problem-solving device. It's an unconditional love toward all mankind. The emphasis is always on the virtue of the one doing the loving, not the one receiving the love. The emphasis is on the virtue of the subject, not the object. You see, under impersonal love, you can love someone based on who you are, not based on who they are. It's the ultimate expression of virtue in your life, as well as humility in your life. It's an amazing thing. There's an example of it in Philemon and Onesimus, the runaway slave who faced death penalty. Paul wrote about it in Philemon 1. Consider him no longer a slave, Paul said, but a beloved brother. There is impersonal love to forgive him, the one who stole and ran away. He's a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So if you count me as a partner, receive him as you would receive me. Amazing how impersonal love will allow you to forgive someone that even stole from you, that even lied about you. You see, under those circumstances, you can react with hatred or you can respond with forgiveness. Personal love for people is not commanded in the Bible. I am not commanded to personally love everybody. That's not the point. I'm commanded to personally love God. But impersonal love 
is always required by God as a part of his operational plan. For example, husbands, love your wives. I am mandated in that passage to love my wife. Wives, obey your husbands. Whoops, I shouldn't have said that one, should I? Yep, it's a mandate. Same thing there. Titus 2.4, older women should teach the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. In Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. These are imperative mood verbs. They're not requests. They are mandates. And impersonal love. Listen, if you and your spouse get into an argument, the worst thing you could ever say is, I don't love you. God would never say that to anybody. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You may have to switch loves if they frustrate you. If they anger you, you just switch over to impersonal love. And then you love them based on who you are, maybe not based on who they are. But impersonal love does not work until it is first motivated by your personal love for God. You can't love someone you don't like until, first of all, you love God, who you don't know very much yet. The more you know God, the more you'll love people you don't like. It's an amazing thing. But without impersonal love, you're never going to have any good human relationships. You're always going to be uh, nitpicking. You're always going to be moody. You're always going to be jumping from one friend to another one partner to another, one spouse to another, because you don't have any basis to hold that relationship together. Without impersonal love as a wonderful problem-solving device, the Christian cannot hold friendship relationships together. It's amazing. Emotions are designed by God to appreciate a relationship, but never to establish the relationship. But virtue, love in the Christian life doesn't have emotion. It doesn't work on emotion. It works on the content of God's word in your soul. Because emotions don't think. You can think. You can solve your problems if you purify your soul with the word of God. Arrogant people are the ones that are always seeking unconditional love from other people, but they don't have anything to offer in return. Their love is always conditional. They love you based on what you do for them or if you follow their rules or their regulations. So the greater the arrogance, the greater the conditions of the love. That's not the Christian lie. That's not what God says. Impersonal love is wonderful. How did God love you? With impersonal love. He loved you when you were still a sinner. He loved you even though you were not his child yet. And he sent his son to die for you. Personal love without impersonal love as a virtue, that's when you are very weak and very unstable. John 15, 12, this is my mandate, that you love one another as I have said I love you. First John 4, 20, if someone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Think about that. Consider it. Pray about it. Until next week, this is your host, Rick Hughes. 
saying thank you for listening to The Floodline. Thank you for listening to The Floodline with your host, Rick Hughes. If you'd like to contact Rick, please write to him at P.O. Box 100, Cropwell, Alabama, 35054, or online at www.rickhughesministries.org.